Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. There's no other name by which people can be saved but the name of Jesus. Amen? It's at his name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In the Christmas stories in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is told, you'll give them the name Jesus because they'll save their people, his people, from their sins. He is an incredible Savior. Amen? We could wrap up right now. And uh, we've worshiped Jesus and come together and uh, hopefully been more equipped even to live this next week. But I believe God's given us a message from Luke chapter 1 today that we're going to jump into. We've been doing this series called Anticipating Christmas. And we've been talking about in week one, I had you in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, we talked about the different appearances of Jesus. The first appearance, which is his birth, that's what we talk about this time of year, uh, where he's appearing now. He's appearing before the Father on our behalf right now in heaven. And then the appearance that is to come, that he's coming back to this earth. Amen? And hopefully you're anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. And last week, Pastor Dave was talking about our responses to Jesus. And as we're talking about what you're anticipating this Christmas or in the future, our hope is that it has something to do with Jesus, whether it's his return or whether it's some work that you want him to do, rekindle your relationship with him, a passion for him, answer a prayer, bring somebody else into his family, because we know the reason he hasn't come back yet, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he's patient, waiting for more people to repent. And so let's pray that maybe some of those people are in the service today, and maybe he'll come back before it's over. Um, we know the power might go out, just so you know, and our church is planned for that. There's neighborhoods around us that have been losing power. If it does, um, the Holy Spirit's still working, and so we're going to keep going. Uh, and your kids are taken care of. They're eating cupcakes and having fun over there today. And, uh, and we're just going to pray uh, right now as we open up God's Word in Luke chapter 1 um, that God will speak to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Um, Thanks that we get to call you Father, that we don't have some rituals we have to go through in order to, to talk to you, that we don't have to clean ourselves up or um, do some weird religious thing, but because of what your son Jesus has done, that we can come right boldly before your throne, that it's a throne of grace. There are people here who feel unworthy to talk to you. God, will you overwhelm them with your grace? Uh, Father, there are people here that are hurting because of uh, loss of loved ones or different things in their lives. Will you please show them how good you are? There are people here that are excited about you and just want to be just nudged in the right way to serve you. God, will you have people take significant steps of faith as a result of our time in your word today? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I've been asking you in this series, Anticipating Christmas, what are you waiting for? What are you anticipating? What is your hope in? And sometimes a good thing to do when you're thinking about what's coming is to look back and see what has happened. And so one of the things I'll do oftentimes at the end of a year is just go back and look through what were the big headlines throughout the year. Because in my mind, I don't know if it happens for you, but sometimes I blur together like, was that 2018? Was that 2020? What happened in 2021? And so I'm going to share with you just some news headlines that are just from 2021. I realize I may miss your favorite news headline. I know that the way that I read it off the internet might be slanted politically different than you. If you're on the left, I hope you're offended. If you're on the right, I hope you're offended. I hope everyone's equally offended today. And so here... Here are some of the things that happened, if you remember, uh, this year. On January 6th, there were riots at the Capitol. On January 27th, um, some seemingly dead stocks went crazy. Uh, GameStop, AMC, some of you showed me your phones. Like, look, I bought this stupid thing, and look at this. It's crazy. February 7th, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl. All right, yeah. Those are people over 40 that are hoping they can still go pro. Tom Brady gives us hope, right? Like, he's got the, yeah. Can only drink water and eat celery, though, but whatever. 
On February 23rd, Tiger Woods uh, was in a terrible car crash. March 11th, um, the president signed a $1.9 trillion stimulus package and, and urged everyone to be vaccinated. On March 11th, NFTs, that's non-fungible tokens, became popular, and he, an artist known as Beeple sold a, an NFT for $69 million. There's a picture of it. A whole bunch of little pictures put together. There you go. All right. Put that on your to-do list. Uh, March 18th. America all of a sudden becomes aware of the supply chain as Honda and Toyota said they're stopping production in the United States and now it's impacted everything. Uh, March 23rd, remember this, a container ship gets stuck sideways in the Suez Canal. If you're the driver of that, oops, like what do you say? Lasted for about a week. On April 14th, uh, President Biden says that he will, he will withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, which we know turned into a disaster and billions of dollars of equipment we handed over to our enemies. And you say, well, how do you, what do you call them? Here? Somebody says they want to kill you. They're your enemies. April 20th, Derek Chauvin is found guilty of the murder of George Floyd. You may remember that, sparking racial protests around the world. May 7th, cyber attacks cut off a key gas line supply, shutting down the East Coast uh, main supply of gasoline. Remember, that was in this year. It's hard to remember sometimes how these things blur together. May 12th, inflation is at about 4.2% reported. Some people say it's higher. Um, that's the highest it had been in 13 years. May 19th, listen to this one, this is a good one. Texas abortion law uh, is set into place. Governor Greg Abbott signs a bill banning most abortions after six to eight weeks of pregnancy. That's good. Amen. Oh, good Lord, Amber. On uh, June 21st, college athletes can be paid. Some of you were college athletes. Someone wants to be a college athlete. <laughs> Legally paid, let me say that. The Supreme Court rules that strict NCAA limits on compensating athletes violates U.S. antitrust laws. And so now we have advertisements with um, college students. Uh, June 22nd, house prices surge and uh, the biggest annual increase in 20 years. If you own a house, amen. If you don't, oh, man. There it goes. June 24th, remember this, the Florida condo collapses? July 1st, the spread of the Delta variant. July 8th, the Summer Olympics decide they're gonna go on in Tokyo, but no spectators. July 11th, some rich guys are racing to space and Richard Branson beats Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Who cares? Uh, July 27th, the CDC, uh, citing Delta variant, recommends even vaccinated people resume wearing masks indoors in some parts of the country. August 15th, the Taliban does take over uh, the capital in Afghanistan and the U.S. begins to pull U.S. citizens out of that area. August 29th is the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Ida hits New Orleans. September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the largest terrorist attack in history. Also in September, a young lady named Gabby Petito goes missing. America becomes enthralled with that story. October 28th, Facebook changed its name to Meta. Everybody wonders if they're going to wear virtual headwear, headgear everywhere. November, inflation hits a four-decade high. November 30th, there's a shooting at a school in Oxford, Michigan. Four students are killed, seven are injured. A few days ago, December 10th, about nine days ago, a tornado breaks out. I read one article that said there were 30 tornadoes. Over 100 people, they estimate, died in those tornadoes. So you see there's lots of things that have happened. Good news, bad news, some stuff in the middle. What's next? I don't know. If it'll be triumph or tragedy, I don't know if it'll be good or bad. I don't know if it's gonna be, for you personally, a valley in your life, a mountaintop. But let me ask you this question. Are you ready? We're gonna look at a passage of scripture today that's very familiar to many of you. So if you've ever been to church at Christmas time, you may have heard this passage of scripture. But I believe that we see something today that could prepare you for whatever is next. 
because you're going to see something in this passage of Scripture that would prepare you for any and every circumstance, triumph, tragedy, any of it. And so if you have your Bibles, please join me in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to jump into this passage, and we're going to start reading in verse 26. It's the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Some of you may know this passage already, and so some of you, just a a tip in studying your Bible on your own as a whole. Sometimes maybe you've been doing devotions, and you go read a verse, and you wonder if it even applies to you. Sometimes it doesn't, just so you know. We're so self-centered. We don't know that. It's like, sometimes it's not actually about you. And the way that you know that is that you start zooming out. And what is the context here? So we're going to start reading in verse 26, but do you ever ask yourself the question, why is this story in Luke and it's not in any of the other Gospels? Like Mark doesn't even talk about the birth of Jesus. John, he doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. Instead, he goes pre-incarnate. He goes before Jesus is eternal. And so he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so God's always existed. And if you want to know what the Father looks like, then look at the Son. Why does he talk about that? And then Mark doesn't talk about any of that. And if you go to Matthew, Matthew doesn't talk about the story we're about to read. Instead, he tells the story of the birth of Jesus from from Joseph's perspective. And so here we're going to see it from this young lady Mary's perspective. Why? Well, then you've got to back up and ask yourself, well, why is the Gospel of Luke even written? It's written to believers. Listen to a couple verses before verse 26 and verses 3 and 4. Luke, who's a doctor and a historian, says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. So he's writing it not for himself. He's writing for someone else, someone with high social standing named Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus, that you, and this applies to us as well, may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so it's for believers to be certain about the things that they've been taught about Jesus. And then Luke, who's a doctor, starts his book off of this orderly account of Jesus' life to build certainty into somebody else's life with two birth accounts. In order to understand the birth account we're going to read, the second one, you've got to know some things about the first one. They're total contrast to each other. In the first birth account, an angel named Gabriel comes and announces to a priest, he's an old dude, who's in a religious place, and he's a religious leader, who's at the temple in Jerusalem. The second account is going to be to a young woman that's in the middle of nowhere. She's in Nazareth. In Jerusalem, Jerusalem's where you went for spiritual blessing. If you wanted to have spiritual blessings in your life, you moved to Jerusalem. If you wanted to make money, you lived in Galilee. Nazareth is in Galilee, only it's a poor town thought of as a place of debauchery. That's a military outpost, all kinds of terrible stuff happening there. And so that was not a place that anybody would like. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, if you think they're just like all these holy guys, when he meets Jesus, like, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was bad. Well, who lives in that? It's like some of you, the way you talk about Durham. Like, Durham? Why do you live in Durham? Do you know that Durham's like the fifth best place to live in the world? And like, yeah, the people from Durham are saying, and then like Raleigh's like third, so we're like, yeah, Raleigh's better. We're like, well, come on, it's awesome, it's all awesome. And so they're, they're like, Nazareth, anything good come from Nazareth? Well, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, how about that? <laughs> and so you've got these contrasts happening of Jerusalem, and you've got Nazareth, and you've got a, an old guy, and you've got a young girl, but the big contrast that Luke wants Theophilus and you and me to see is the response. When Zechariah the priest responds, he's rebuked and disciplined. That's not a good response. When Mary responds, she's blessed. That's the response we're going for. So he's saying to Theophilus and to you and me, don't respond like Zechariah in doubt and disbelief. Respond like Mary in surrender. Look at the story with me. It's in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, and that's the sixth month of uh, Elizabeth, that's Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, so six months after he appears to Zechariah, 
The angel Gabriel sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And here's the encounter. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She has no idea how literal that's going to be. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. That's not surprising. She's pledged to be married. And you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, that's a popular name. He'll be great and will be called the son. Whoa, hold up. The son of the most high? He's divine? And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That was promised about 700 years earlier in 2 Samuel 7. You're talking about the Messiah here. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. There's never been a politician whose reign has been forever. And Mary said to the angel, uh, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit. Same way you and I can have new life. Holy Spirit will come upon you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, you didn't ask for a sign, but here is one. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age was also, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And here's the real reason, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then get this response. And Mary said, I think I'd be negotiating at this point. All right, angel, let's think about this. Maybe after the wedding, like, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's pretty striking anytime you see a response that's counter what the majority of people will do. We talk about this with 9-11, when the firemen were running into the building and everybody else was running out of the building. Um, in one of the headlines I just read to you, there was a shooting close to where I, I grew up in uh, Oxford, Michigan, at a high school. Four people were killed, seven people were injured. And some of you who've seen that headline recently know there's one young man that they keep uh, mentioning more than some of the other people that were shot. His name's Tate Meyer, he's a football player. And one of the reasons why, I don't know if you've read some of the articles, but I was reading some of the different articles, is because of how he responded in the midst of the shooting. His uh, coach, his wrestling coach, his football coach, is a guy named Ross Wingert, and Coach Wingert uh, was being interviewed by some of the newspapers after this happened, and he talked about being gathered together in the grocery store parking lot, trying to account for all the different students. And Tate wasn't there, and he saw Tate's dad, their friends, and the dad said to him, you know, if anybody went back, it was Tate. And Coach Winger had already been told by several of the students, when everybody was running out of the building, Tate was running toward the shooting. And so he didn't, he didn't see this, but later it was confirmed that Tate had been shot. He was put into a deputy's car. About two hours later, uh, Coach Winger found this out and he texted some of his coaching uh, buddies. And, and this is exactly what he said. I'm gonna read it to you. He's texting them about Tate. And he says, Tate is the fastest, most athletic kid in that school. There's no way he couldn't have gotten out, of, out if he wanted to. I know that Tate chose to do what he thought was right and made the ultimate sacrifice. And this article, which is in the Detroit Free Press, uh, goes on where Coach Winger talks about little sacrifices that he made all the time. It was part of who he was. He did it for his team, uh, whether it was a wrestling team or his football team. He did it for other people. He was just a selfless person. And then he says this, all those small decisions, all those small sacrifices, Winger believes, form the core of a determined person who would run after a gunman instead of running to safety. And then the coach said, it's accountability, it's doing what's right. 
You can't do what he did unless you prepared yourself beforehand. So there was preparation in his heart for a moment like that. And you see Mary in this passage, and she responds differently than most people would respond. How? Now, here's the reality. I've preached this message almost every Christmas. Like, good pastors go to the Christmas story passages, right? Like, you're not supposed to preach Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless. People are coming to church at Christmas like, what's his problem? I think maybe one year I did Hosea, and the elders were like, stop talking about prostitutes at Christmas. And it's like, all right. (laughs) So I looked back, and over the 15 years that I've been pastoring this church, I think I've preached from this passage 10 or 12 times. Depends if you count Christmas Eve services, about 12 times I preached this passage. And so here's the crazy thing about God's Word. You can go to the the same passage 10, 12, 15, 20 times, And God keeps speaking to you because there's so much there and something stuck out to me this year that had never stuck out before. And it was Mary's heart being prepared with the promises of God. Did you see that section? He will be great. He'll be the son of the most high. He will reign on the throne of David. There's a promise there coming from 2 Samuel chapter 7 as well. And he's going to reign forever. Nobody reigns forever. He's the son of the most high. He's the throne of David. Like there's all these promises through there. She's not surprised by any of that. It's like her heart's been prepared by that. Her plans just got blown out of the water. And what you see in the Christmas story, it doesn't matter which character you look at. Herod, Wiseman, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Joseph, Mary. Like you see all these characters. Everybody's plans got blown out of the water when Jesus came. But some people shined. Some people thrived. And what you see is it's the people that were dependent upon God's word. And so today, as we ask you the question, are you ready for what's next? Not knowing what's next. But I'm confident I can tell you how to be prepared for whatever it is. Here's what you need to know. That God prepares your hearts with his promises. God prepares your hearts with his promises. The question we have to ask ourselves is when things change from what you have planned, are you going to be focused on the circumstances or on the promises of God? Because I'm going to tell you, Nobody that's focused on the circumstances ends up walking by faith. It's the people that are prepared in their hearts with the promises of God. And so you think about what's happened here with Mary. And, and in years past, I've talked about what Nazareth was like and what it was like. She's probably illiterate. She's probably, she might be 12. She's probably about 14 years old. And we're not going to get into all that today. I just want you to Im- imagine being a young girl, 14 years old, and an angel appears to you. Like, just think about that. I mean, sometimes I think we think, like, it's the Bible and there's angels. Like, that didn't happen, okay? Not any more common than it is for you. And so can you imagine being a 14-year-old girl and an angel pops up in your house while you're doing whatever chores you got that day? Now, here's another problem. Some of you, when you think of angel, uh, you think of not biblical pictures of angel, but like what you've seen in movies. And the movies always portray angels as like these beautiful people with an aura around them. Ooh, there's like light around them. Got, it doesn't matter if it's a guy or a girl, like long flowing hair. And there's like an aura there. Which is fine. It's just not what you see in the Bible. There's a reason why one of some of the first words off the lips of angels every time there's a person around is this, don't be afraid. Can you guess why? Because they're afraid. Right? Like, and we think like angel and like I say, imagine an angel appears and some of you have been to like Christmas plays and your nephew was an angel and he's super gregarious, right? And so he's got his introverted friends in the back holding a rope and he's like swinging over the audience. What up, Jesus? Like he's out there. So you think of your nephew, smiling face kid, as an angel. Let me tell you something. Read your Bible about angels. It's crazy. Here's a verse you can write down for your devotions this week. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. 
In one night, the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 people. People wake up the next day, dead bodies everywhere. What happened? An angel. Whoa, okay, maybe there's a reason to be scared of angels. And we read here, it's Gabriel that appears in the birth narrative to Zechariah. He's scared. Don't be afraid. You see it here? She's troubled. Don't be afraid. But we're not told what Gabriel looks like. Gabriel appears in the Old Testament as well. In Daniel chapter 8 and 9. In Daniel chapter 10, we get a description of a being that many people believe is Gabriel, but he's not named in that passage, so we don't know for sure. But if this is Gabriel, listen to what Gabriel looks like. Daniel chapter 10, and verse, you read verse 4, 5, and 6 on your own, but verse 6 for the sake of time. His body was like beryl. Uh, what is beryl? I googled it. It's rock. It's a mineral. And it's got different colors, but he's, he's, he's stacked. Face is like the appearance of lightning. Okay, that's not your nephew, just FYI. Maybe it's a glow. Okay, well, listen to this. His eyes are like flaming torches. That's scary. His arms and legs like gleams of burnished bronze. In other words, Daniel doesn't have the words to describe what he's seeing because he's never seen anything like this, but it's not normal. His voice, the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. Was it any wonder that Mary's troubled when this angel appears? But let me read you verse 29 in Luke chapter 1. She was greatly troubled. It doesn't say at his appearance. It doesn't even say at his voice. His voice is like a multitude. <sighs> like, you, what does that even sound like? It says at what he said. It's the content. At the saying. Try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So she's troubled. The word troubled means shaken. I don't know if any of you are jumpy, like if somebody comes into a room, like scares you. This week I was in my office. Sometimes I get in my head. I'm reading a file in my office. Pastor Dave, the door was like partway open. He pops in just to see how I'm doing. He's like, hey. And I was like, blah. What are you doing? He said, I'm just checking to see how you're doing. Oh, it's fine until you tried to scare me to death. That's pretty good. She's shaken. She's troubled. But it was by the words. What were the words? You got to go back to verse 28. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. O favored one uh, means that she's greatly graced. That's a literal translation. Some of your translations may say that. It's used one other time in the New Testament. It's about believers in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. It means to be a recipient of grace. And so this passage that sometimes is used to say you should pray to Mary, that's nonsense. Mary needs to receive grace too. She's a sinner. In fact, later in Luke chapter 1, she's going to call Jesus her Savior. The only people who need saviors are sinners. So Mary, great response in this passage. Not somebody to be worshipped, not somebody to be prayed to. She's not a dispenser of grace. She's a recipient of grace, just like you are if you know Christ. But she's shaken. Why would you be shaken by told you're a recipient of grace? I think it shows the humility of her heart. Me? Here? Well, certainly. You might be at the wrong. I'm in Nazareth. I mean, maybe someone's talking about somebody in Jerusalem. Like maybe an old religious dude or something, but not me. This young girl is probably illiterate, who has almost no future ahead of her. She's humble. And then why? Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, grace with God, and behold, you will conceive. Okay. She's going to get married. That makes sense. And in your womb, we bear a son. Okay. 50-50 chance. Okay. We'll go with that. And you shall call his name Jesus. He's preparing her for the promises he's about to say. Talked about the name today. There's no other name by which we'll be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The name literally means, it's two words put together. It's a Hebrew noun, Yah, which is an abbreviation of Yahweh, Israel's God. 
And some people you'll hear say Yeshua, Yasa is the second word. It's a verb, to deliver, to rescue. The name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. It's preparing her that the child, we're, the baby we're about to talk about is the Messiah. The baby that's going to be in your womb, 14-year-old little girl, he's going to solve man's greatest problem. And you think about that. We've all sensed the need for that before. I don't consider myself a, an expert on pop culture, but I get sucked into clickbait like the rest of y'all probably do. And uh, this week I was scrolling through my phone and I was on social media and I saw this article about Ben Affleck. I don't know if you saw this, but it's somewhat controversial if you're familiar with this. In an interview that he did where he talked about his, his alcoholism and he was talking about his, his marriage. His, some of the, his ex-wife's friends were upset that he was blaming his alcoholism on her. I'm not, you should, you're accountable for your own bad decisions. That's not what I'm endorsing. I think he said something in the article that was incredibly revealing. He was talking about feeling stuck in his life and trapped in his life, and he said, so I drink a bottle of scotch. And then he said, that's not the answer. Mm -hmm. Who hasn't, that's lived any amount of time, tried something to fill a void in their life that didn't work, and they go, that didn't work. Maybe it's not alcohol for you, maybe it's something, maybe it is, I don't know. About 10 days ago, my brother uh, had heart surgery. Some of you have been in our church for a little while know um, some of my story with my dad. And about 20 years ago, I was praying, for I was a newer Christian, I was praying for my mom to come to Christ. I prayed, God, do anything, whatever it takes for my mom to come to Christ. And the next day, my dad had to have an emergency heart surgery. Lots of details of that story. That's not the point, but they found out he had a rare heart condition. And so my brother and I have had to be tested for that, and my brother has it. And so about 10 days ago, he had to have open heart surgery to replace his aorta, to replace a valve. When they got in there, not before, they found he had a hole in his heart. He had a hole in his heart his whole life. They believed us from birth. So he's over 35 years old. For 35 plus years, he's been walking around with a hole in his heart and they didn't know. I said, Alex, his name's Alex. How many tests did they do on you? Because I knew I had done some different tests. He's like, we did echocardiogram, we did CT scan, we did chest x-rays. He listed like five or six different medical tests. I said, man, show that you had a hole in your heart? Like, that seems like a significant thing. Do you know what the Bible says about all of us? We have an eternal vacuum in our heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, God's placed eternity in your heart. And you know what we all do? We try to fill that vacuum, that void, with temporary things. If you're watching online, you're listening in this room right now, and you don't know Christ, this is the most important thing I can say to you today. You can never fill an eternal void with temporary stuff. And that's what Ben Affleck was realizing. And you could change it. Maybe he's like, oh, we'll condemn alcoholisms, alcoholics are making bad choices. But we praise workaholics. They're trying to do the same thing. Like I've got something's missing, things aren't good at home, and I don't like that, and I'm not just going to keep doing it. People pat me on the back, and they give me promotions, they do these things here, and, and every once in a while at church, they're like, you should take a break, but good job, keep selling stuff. I want to put it into ministry, like you serve here at the church, and it's like, dude, it's like we, we do it all kinds of temporary stuff. So I don't care if you pick ministry, or sex, or drugs, or alcohol, or money, or a promotion, you can't fill an eternal void with temporary stuff. And so what's being pointed to in this passage is Jesus is the only one that can fill that void. St. Augustine said it like this, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Talking about who's him? Jesus, the name. The only one that can save. The only one that can fill that void. And so what we get is this series of promises about who is this Jesus. 
You're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. Who is he? Well, here's these promises. Some people say there's seven. I'm just going to point out four promises here in this passage. And so you can dig in a little bit more if you want on your own. But it says first, he will be great. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like an understatement? Yeah, Tony the Tiger. We're talking about cereal. He's great. Like, what do you mean he's great? There's a contrast here that's happening in the passage with Luke, just to be fair, uh, where John the Baptist, who was the child that was predicted in the first birth narrative, is being, he said that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus is just called great here, which means there's no qualifier on it. But here's the problem. Many of us, when we hear this, we think that great is supposed to describe Jesus. The reality is that Jesus defines what greatness is. And what Luke oftentimes does is he'll give us a little sample of truth and then throughout the book as you read, he fills in the meaning of what's being talked about. And so what happens here is he says, Jesus is great. But then what do we see about greatness throughout the gospel of Luke? We see the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest, right? And it's kind of like a stupid, have you ever been in the conversation before where people are like trying to outdo each other? Like I ran up whatever when I was in high school. Oh yeah, well I ran up and here's that and I got, this was so bad. Mine was worse and you know, all that kind of stuff. The disciples are doing that and you just kind of like, oh, they're idiots. Like as you read the, and I don't know if you use the word idiot or not, but oh, they're not, what is the spiritual word? They're slow, they're slow, like whatever's going on there. And uh, Jesus said they were dull, so we'll just go with that. And so they're arguing and you think it's, but did you notice that Jesus does not rebuke their desire for greatness? Instead, he redefines what greatness is. Their ambition's not the problem. The problem is their definition. Their definition is they think they can get a bunch of people to serve them. And then Jesus says to them, no, it's you serve. Truly great people, they serve people. And so he's the ultimate picture. And Mark, it says it like this, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But Mary wouldn't know that verse because that hadn't happened yet. And so you look at a passage like Isaiah chapter 64. Let me read you Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. Prophet, 700 years before Jesus, says, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen so no one's even been able to, in all the false gods that have been made up, no one's even been able to make up a God like this. A God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Now put that in context. It's been hundreds of years since God even spoke. 400 years since God spoke in the Old Testament. Now an angel shows up. You've been waiting for this, Mary. It's been thousands of years we've been waiting for the Messiah. And, and what's being said here is God's been working the whole time. We sing a song every once in a while. Uh, he's working, even when you don't see it, he's working. While you're waiting, the Bible says, he's working. I don't know what's next, but God's at work. What are you waiting for? Those who are waiting for him, it says that he's working for them. He is great. He is a servant. And he's divine. Did you see the next part? He'll be called the son of the most high. That's the next promise. That, so he's a divine servant. The son of the most high, uh, it's interesting here, there's a Hebrew idiom that's taking place in the Hebrew thought process, Semitic thought process, uh, to say someone was the son was to say they were the carbon copy of their father. Son of, you say, oh, he's the son of, and you're saying the characteristics like his dad. Well, what are the characteristics like God the father that Jesus shows? Well, a little bit later in this passage, verse 35, we're told that he's going to be given birth by the Holy Spirit. That's how it's going to happen. It says he'll be called holy, the son of God. So when he's talking about being the son of God again, it's this holiness that's pointed out. Think about that. What does it mean for him to be holy? He's without sin. I saw one Bible commentator, Warren Wearsby, said this week, he knew no sin, he had no sin, he did no sin. Here's some verses for that. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's on the screen. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
So he became for us what we needed forgiven, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's transformation, amen? 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. He did no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. How about he had no sin? 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So we have a sinless Savior. The virgin birth, you wonder if it matters or not? I said, therefore, because he was born of a virgin, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. Therefore, he'll be called holy, the Son of God. If he's not holy, we're all in trouble. Oh, it hinges here, it hinges here. And when you put it into context, I've given you the biblical context. We'll talk about historical context in a minute. This next one's significant. Not only is he divine, not only is he great, a divine servant, he's a king. Did you see this promise? It says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne, kings have thrones, of his father David, and he will reign, kings reign, over the house of Jacob. That's, that's the Jews. It's interesting when you put it in a historical context. Herod is king. Some of you may know this. Maybe it's in your study Bibles. Herod's the king of the Jews, but he's not even Jewish. He's half Edomian and half Jewish, but he calls himself the king of the Jews, and he rules, rules over Israel, and he ruthlessly guards his rule, which makes him the ultimate picture of hypocrisy. Because he's so ruthless in guarding his power, he kills his own sons when he thinks he's got two sons that might threaten his throne. But he doesn't eat pork. I, just, I thought to myself this week, sometimes uh, politicians will ask pastors or different spiritual leaders to be spiritual consultants. And I thought, if Herod asked me to be a spiritual consultant, I'd say, why don't you go ahead and have the bacon? But stop killing your kids. And I was like... There's one historian, a fifth century guy, who wrote down that Caesar Augustus actually said about Herod, so that's his boss, Caesar Augustus, he said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. You have a better chance of survival in that situation. But it really gets bad when you start to dig into the history and you realize that Old Testament law said you tax the people through the temple. That would give not just their 10% tithe, but the tithe was significant. It was also all their taxes, and that was the way that it, it ended up happening, which was fine. That's what the Old Testament law said. However, as the king of the Jews, what he would do is then to make the other emperors that are his bosses happy with him as he'd go build cities in their name and in their honor. Do you see in the first commandment? Set no other gods before you. He's taking the temple, the tithe, and then using it, he builds places to be reverent to the Roman pantheon of gods using God's money. That's hypocrisy. And then who is Jesus? A king who didn't come to be served but to serve, and he is without sin? We've never seen a king like this before. This is, this is what it means to have the name Jesus, a divine servant king who is, don't miss this last promise, unstoppable. Did you see that? It's redundant in the passage. It says uh, after verse 32 and verse 33, it says there, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Okay, we know how long that is. It doesn't stop. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Don't miss this. One of the things I love that points this out in the passage I hadn't seen in the past, but I saw this year, is what Gabriel doesn't say to Mary. Gabriel doesn't come to Mary and go, you know what, Mary, we were in heaven, we've been talking, we're looking for a mother for the Messiah. Your name popped up. Like she's now being interviewed, that's not what happens. Like we talk about her response, and her response is pretty incredible in the passage, but her response is irrelevant. Did you see what the passage says? This is what stuck out to me. 
Every time it talks about who he is, it's with authority. He will, he will, he will. Verse 32, he will be great. Not, he's going to have a lot of potential. Hope he gets up there. He will be called the son of the most high. Not he's going to be anointed someday as long as he doesn't. No, this is happening. This is what's taking place. He is this already. It's not about what you do, Mary. The Lord will give him the throne of David. Not if the right people are in the right place at the right time and they vote. And No, this is going to happen. He will reign forever. There's an authority to this. I, got, I experienced this this week. I was texting with my wife. We were talking, we have four kids. Some of you think I'm a pastor. I'm really a chauffeur, but I pastor kind of on the side. I've got four kids. And we're trying to figure out how to get them to the places they needed to be this weekend. And she texted me the plan. I didn't realize this was the plan. I thought I could make some suggestions about said plan. That was a mistake. How about we, and what about if we try it? She wrote me back. I already talked to this parent. What I said in the last text, that is happening. Okay. I wrote back, you go, girl. Like, you got this. There's an authority with that. He will be the king. He will reign forever. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter what happens next. He will reign forever. He is unstoppable. He is divine, servant, king. There's no stopping it. But then Mary asked a question, if you know the story. We read it already today. But I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? There's a problem that happens for her in this, and it oftentimes happens for us, and this is the test of faith. When what he says and what we see don't line up, when what God says in his word and what we see in the world don't line up or in our world don't line up, now faith has to come into action. Let me remind you what I said at the beginning of this point. The people who are staring at the circumstances don't end up walking by faith. It's the people who lean on what is said. Hey, Noah, build a boat. It's not raining. What he sees and what is said don't line up. Test of faith. Moses, you're going to lead a nation. But I can't speak. What, what I said and what you see don't line up. What are you going to trust? Peter, speaking with Jesus, big fail, by the way, in this story. I've given you two good examples. Big fail. Uh, Jesus says, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, the elders, teachers of the law. They're going to kill me. No, 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 not you, Jesus. Because what he sees and what God says don't seem to line up. When what we see and what God says don't seem to line up, Abraham, you're going to have a child, but I'm really old. God does the impossible. Are you going to trust what he says or what you see? Because that's the test of your faith is in that moment. And so we'll put it in our world. The next variant comes out. People get really sick. There's no debating about the death tolls. What are you going to do as a Christian? Because you're commanded what to do. You're going to protect yourself or are you going to take care of other people putting yourself at risk? But what you see and what he says, they don't seem to line up. Inflation rate keeps going up so much you can't even drive to work. Are you still going to tithe? What you see and what he says don't seem to line up. It gets really bad. Uh, maybe whoever you're putting your hope in, unfortunately, uh, for the next election doesn't get elected and Christianity becomes outlawed and it's against the law to talk about Jesus. And do you want to know when faith's going to become visible? You still going to do it? What he says and what you see, how, do, how, do you, how are you ready to respond differently than what the majority of people are going to respond? Is your heart prepared with his promises? There are hundreds, if not thousands of them in the Bible. I'll share a few of them just to give you some tools today. And we'll put a, a post maybe on social media or something to give you a bigger list. But Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 29 says this. That's an Old Testament one. 
But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, if you seek me, you will find me. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. That's a promise. His steadfast love endures forever even when you don't feel loved. He loves you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, this isn't for everybody, all things work out together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel callous. I talked to somebody at the first service. They said they felt numb. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Has he begun the work? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and will he provide for you? And all these things will be added to you. Matthew 11, 28 and 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Are you tired? Maybe we're doing stuff that's not his work because listen to what he says next. Takes my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. Really, it doesn't feel easy sometimes and my burden is light. What I see and what you say. John chapter 10 verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And who provides security? You being a good enough boy or girl and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, he does it. John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's a promise. And I'll take you to myself that where I am, you will also be. Here's a promise that wraps up all the promises, the thousands of them in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's the name, Jesus. Amen? He's the answer to all the promises. The Bible clearly states that. When you think about all the promises, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to provide for you. You're secure in me. He's greatly graced you. That's troubling to some. Mm -hmm. It's all yes in him. What you see, what he says, don't always line up. But you want the world to change? You know how God changes the world? God changes the world through people who obey his word. That's our second point. And really where we're landing this whole thing is the response of Mary. See, our problem is, and it wasn't embarrassing for some of you to be a Christian during this last election, was it not? And some of you are like, what was embarrassing? It was probably you, just FYI. (laughs) I hope we're more equipped for the next one if Jesus hasn't come back yet. How's that going to happen? See, here's the problem for some of us. We think that our hope is placed in power and politics and money and strategy and smarts, like building up your resume. Read the Bible. If you want to see how God changes the world, it's through people who submit to him. You want to change the world, be obedient to God's word. That's what happens with Mary. This changes everything. Whether you're a Christian or not, Jesus changed everything in the world. She says to the angel, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. Like, I don't see biologically how this is even possible. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you're like, well, that's not a very good answer. That's how you receive new life in Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says this. If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and if you're a follower of Christ, that's true, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit was part of creation, spoke out of nothing, by the way. And so if you don't think this is possible to have a virgin birth, then here's what we're going to get to. God does the impossible. He gives her a sign, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age was also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. This is great. Um, Some of you have seen this kind of thing before, though. Maybe you know somebody who's maybe past menopause and they have a baby. It's happened. I've seen some kind of what you consider a miraculous birth. I remember I had a friend in Dallas, Texas. His name's Donnie. 
He called me up when they got pregnant, he and his wife, and they were having multiples. Quintuplets, five babies at once. Called me, told me, I was like, are you kidding? So what were you taking? Because so many people in our age at that time were like taking fertility drugs and whatnot. He goes, it's called birth control, Scott. I was like, what? Say what? What? He's trying not to have a child. He's like, five babies, that's, that's crazy. But we've heard of that happening. And so Mary's heard of Elizabeth having a baby, and she's in her old age, probably in her 60s. Well, we, we see barren people in the Old Testament, not able to have babies, have babies. Hannah, different people. Abraham's wife, Sarah, like different people, that's happened. There's never been a virgin birth, though. So he gives this sign, but then he says, but here's the real answer. Nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? And it points back to the greeting that he gave her. Oh, favored one, and here's the key phrase, the Lord is with you. It's in fact the exact same thing that God said to Gideon in the Old Testament when he greeted him. Do you know Gideon's story? Because sometimes if you only know the Sunday school version of it, you really miss what's happening in the story. We talk about Gideon like he's a hero. Gideon was hiding out. He was scared. He was terrified of, of the Midianites that were coming and killing all the Israelites. And so when the angel comes to him, he greets him. And if you just get a verse out of context, you're like, he must have been awesome. He wasn't awesome. But let me read you the verse. It says this, in Judges chapter 6 and verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you. That's the exact same phrase that was given to Mary. Oh, mighty man of valor. What? The dude's terrified. If you keep reading it, he says back to the angel, why isn't God doing the stuff he did when Moses' day? God has forsaken us. And then the angel's gracious with them, gives them words again of praise about his, because of your courage. Courage, the guy is telling you, you don't believe God, and he's hiding out from the people he's scared of. What are you talking about, angel? But what most of us know in the story is that God takes his army from 22,000 people to 300 people, and they have an incredible victory, and there's this miracle moment, and many of us want a miracle moment. Here's the problem. We don't want to be in a moment that needs a miracle. And so we do everything in our lives to shelter ourselves from ever being at that spot. We want the reward of God's promises. We don't want to take the risk of walking by faith. And so what happens at the end is Gideon gets it. And this is why he's a good character in the Bible. Because at the end, in Judges chapter 8, the people come to him after he's had all these military victories and go, will you rule over us? And he goes, no. The Lord should rule over you. Because he knows it was the Lord that was with him. And it's the Lord's the only reason he had the victory in the situation. That's the... Emmanuel, God with us. We submit to him. That's how you know if you're ready for any circumstance. The people that are ready for any circumstance are able to say what Mary says. May it be to me as you have said. Crazy statement. It's like what Jesus says in the garden. Not my will, but your will. It's actually trusting God that he's going to do what's better than what you have planned. Your plans are going to get blown up, okay? It just happens. What are you going to do then? Are you going to focus on the circumstances or the promises? The promises prepare our hearts so we can be in a place of submission. Do you want to know how the world has changed? Read the Bible. You see people like Ruth, your God will be my God. Your people are my people. You see an orphan, you don't need position, an orphan like Esther. If I perish, I perish. You see Job, you want to talk about somebody going through pain? You know what he says about God? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Can you say that? That's Mary. That's Mary. That's different than what will happen to the majority if things go sideways in this country, by the way. But what about you? Father, we come into your presence. We need you. There are many people that will gather around for feedings and for miracles. But Father, will you make us a church of believers that will be committed to you even when they're suffering? 
that we'll be faithful to you. You've saved us. You've changed us. You've given us new life. And if that's not true, God, will you save people? Will you change them? Will you give them new life? I pray if there's anybody that hears these words online, in person, and they need to repent, turn from their sins, and turn to you, that they wouldn't miss this moment. They would do that right now. And if that's you, and you need to turn to Christ, will you just acknowledge your sin before him, ask Jesus to be your Savior, and then come talk to a Christian, somebody you know that loves Jesus. And Father, I pray for those of us who know your son Jesus. Strengthen us for the battle. We anticipate you doing amazing things, but that might mean dark days. We don't know. We don't know if it's triumph. We don't know if it's tragedy. We don't know, but we trust you, and I hope we can all say that in unison. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.